Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Welcome back to Inside the Hive. This is Emily Jane Fox. I'm here with my co-host, Joe Hagan. And I think, honestly, if not our favorite, amongst our tippy-tippy-top favorites, our colleague, Abigail Tracy. Abby, to us. Welcome, Abby. Thank you. You're too kind. Too kind. Abby, we're getting you fresh off a major week for you in Washington, honestly, for the whole country in Washington. But you were there front and center for many, many hours in that Capitol building last week, we've got to hear everything. Tell us what you were doing there, and then we'll walk through what the mood was like, what you saw, who you talked to, all the good things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so initially I was there to follow Max Frost, who is the first uh, Gen Z member elected to Congress. Uh, that was really the idea, sort of to chronicle his first days in Washington, sort of what it was like, you know, this you know, this individual who's really representing this whole new class of of voters, of people, and really sort of emblematic of this broader Gen Z voting bloc that obviously also played a huge role in the midterms. But you know what they say about plans, uh, there's something to deviate from. And come Monday, obviously, everything very quickly went off the rails. You know, the initial plan with Max was to go to his swearing in, you know, they would elect a speaker, people would get sworn in, then we would spend some time going to other members' mixers, and then a party for him that evening. Obviously, none of that happened, given the fact that uh, Kevin McCarthy can't count. Um, He's no Pelosi in terms of knowing where his votes are and where they're not. Uh, That became abundantly clear over the course of four days (laughs) to America. Um, But it really just, it it was a strange day. You know, I've been to a number of votes in Congress, and this atmosphere was incredibly different. You know, there was chaos. There was kind of this tension on the floor that I haven't really seen or felt before. I spent hours and hours up in the House gallery watching, you know, lawmakers. And you could see them. You could watch uh, you could watch these Republicans, you know, Matt Gates or Lauren Boebert kind of making the rounds and going around to talk to other moderate members or, you know, other members of the so-called like 20 McCarthy defectors plotting. And they were really, it was really kind of all playing out in front of you. You saw McCarthy and his allies trying to twist arms and get people to vote their way as well. And then, you know, across the aisle, you had uh, calm, cool, collected Democrats. You know, there was absolutely no headline around the, you know, Democrats in disarray. That was absolutely not there. They stayed completely in line, you know, vote after vote for Hakeem Jeffries over and over. I mean, I I joke that his confidence must be through the roof at this point when you have so many, (laughs) so many people just praising you and saying your name over and over like he had. But it was a very uh, kind of surreal experience. But it was also fascinating because in tandem with everything that was happening on the floor, I was also trying to coordinate 
with Frost's team and kind of stay in touch with them. So not only did I have a window into what was happening on the floor and sort of this broader fight over the speakership, but also a front row seat to what it would be like for a freshman member of Congress, not only you know, navigating his first days in Washington, but navigating, you know, one of the more chaotic episodes that we've seen in the House of Representatives in in decades, really. Yeah. And learning how the sausage gets made from like, in a kind of a weird way, because they're learning all these uh, rules that aren't even ordinarily coming into play when you can't Mm -hmm. decide, for instance, how many of us knew uh, that there in previous times there had been tens or twenties or you know dozens of these kinds of votes could go down before a speaker gets chosen, but it hasn't happened. You know it's ancient history, and so suddenly you know the uh, historians are having to come in and teach everybody you know what the context is here for an unprecedented event. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think regardless of anyone's politics, I think this is a moment to really think about and take into account just how skilled Nancy Pelosi was at managing her caucus. You know, Mm -hmm. it wasn't as if she didn't have these, you know, these threats of defections or these individuals that had issues with her rising to the speakership again and again. But the thing was, is she sorted it all out beforehand. You know, she handled Mm -hmm. it. She did it behind closed doors and then her votes went smoothly. You know, some, there would be an occasional, you know, defector here or there, but you didn't have what you saw with Kevin McCarthy, you know, going into the votes on Tuesday, he said he was confident. They said they thought it might take, you know, probably not on the first vote, but they were confident that, you know, the second vote, they would get everybody over to their side and hit the threshold needed for him to win the speakership. Um, That clearly did not happen. It took 15 votes. But so I think what we really saw is not only, you know, a chaotic episode where you have members getting mad at each other, calling each other terrorists, you know, and these are members within their own party calling them terrorists, like holding, you know, the house uh, hostage and all of these things. But you also had a preview, I think, of what is going to come, you know, as McCarthy tries to Mm -hmm. navigate uh, these next two years as speaker, if he manages to, to keep the speakership for two years, you know, now you have a rule the motion to vacate and it'll be a miracle (laughs) almost if he is manages to make it two years in that leadership role i would say in the 1980s and 90s new york city needed a tough cop like detective louis scarcella putting bad guys away There's no feeling like it in the world. He was the guy who made sure the worst killers were brought to justice. That's one version. This guy is a piece of s***. Derek Hamilton was put away from murder by Detective Scarcella. In prison, Derek turned himself into the best jailhouse lawyer of his generation. And the law was my girlfriend. This is my only way to freedom. Derek and other convicted murderers started a law firm behind bars. We never knew we had the same cop in the case. Scarcella. We got to show that he's a corrupt cop. They can go f*** themselves. I'm Steve Fishman. And I'm Dax Devlin-Ross. And this is The Burden. 
Listen to new episodes of The Burden starting March 19th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And to hear episodes one week early and ad-free with exclusive content, subscribe to True Crime Clubhouse on Apple Podcasts. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How is your social battery right now? Is it bursting with energy or drained? How do you recharge it? Have you ever reflected on those questions? Therapy can give you the self-awareness to build a social life that doesn't drain your battery. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Find your social sweet spot with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com Hive today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Hive. Can you explain what the motion to vacate is about? Like, this is the sort of lever that these guys built into this whole thing, the, the radical, you know, the rogue group. Yeah. So basically what they pushed for was an individual member can have a motion to vacate, which means, you know, they express a lack of confidence in the speaker, which then triggers a vote. So, you know, if that happens, theoretically, we could be in a little bit of a deja vu situation and kind of seeing McCarthy kind of put through the mill uh, yet again in a couple months or, uh, you know, over the next two years is really the idea. You know, they pitch it as sort of this accountability thing, but really, and even Nancy Pelosi came out and said this, it very much erodes the power of the speakership and waters it down. And it makes them beholden to the caucus and not just to the caucus, not the, you know, not the majority of the caucus, but sort of these outliers, you know, sort of these individuals who are more on the fringe and not in line with, you know, the majority of the Republican caucus to kind of bomb throw and really kind of, you know, knock over the apple cart, so to speak. I'm so curious what it is like to experience all of this through the eyes of Gen Z. I think what we witnessed last week is like the peak of destruction and uh, inanity of, of what we've come to know of what I already thought was like a destructive and inane Washington. Um, you have someone who is of a new generation, of a generation that maybe is like kind of post those kinds of shenanigans. Um, I would imagine that perhaps he's a little bit bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, and excited about the prospect of being this new generation entering into Congress. He gets there and he's ushered into this. What kind of reaction did that get from this person who is, you know, has a historic rise to Congress and is greeted with just utter chaos? Yeah, I think I think. As far as sort of his worldview goes and sort of his understanding of politics, I, I think he's probably less naive than people might think. You know, um, he's 25, but he's been an activist and an organizer since he was 15, you know, following the Sandy Hook shootings. Um, and he has really worked closely with, you know, a number of organizations. He was arrested, you know, during the George Floyd protests, all of this. So he kind of has seen sort of some of those darker sides of the bureaucracy to date. But I think one of the interesting things about Max Ross and about the generation that he's coming to Congress to represent is 
they have an entirely different set of historical events and experiences that are really shaping their worldview. You know, I think every generation has these, right? Whether it's, you know, whether it's JFK assassination, Watergate, moon landing, 9-11, you know, every generation has these sort of moments. But he's really coming into Congress with a set that is very unique and very different from his colleagues. You know, he talked to me about watching the Occupy Wall Street um, protests in elementary school. And then, you know, the Sandy Hook shooting was sort of the, the thing that prompted his activism to begin with. And then it was mass shooting after mass shooting. And that was really something that he really ran on, you know, um, gun control was a huge part of his platform. And, and then from there, you know, then he, you know, He's going to be a member of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus and the Congressional Black Caucus. And so he represents a very unique sect of society. And he also was watching, you know, the murders of Breonna Taylor and and George Floyd, and those had such an impact on him. And so I think one of the fascinating things about him and, you know, the generation that he hails from is that set of experiences that have shaped him. And I think when those are the things, and then you throw in climate change on top of that, um, I think those are the things that are really setting him apart from a number of his colleagues. But also, I think, uh, leave him with little patience for um, some of the shenanigans that we saw on the House floor over the past week. And to your point, at that age, um, he's known politically nothing but disruption, right? I mean, five years ago was Trump. And before that, maybe the, maybe he remembers the Tea Party, right? But it's just from the right, it's been nothing but this since he's come into his – so probably, like you said, like – uh, maybe a thicker skin for in preparation for this, and also uh, uh, impatience mm-hmm. to get something done. Well, and he he did kind of talk about this idea. You know, I'm a millennial. Um, I was born in 1990, and so I was 11 at 9/11. And so for me, that was one of really kind of that first geopolitical event that, you know, I was super aware of and, you know, that had a big impact. But it was like after 9-11, we had that period where, you know, the country got behind George Bush and it was like rah, rah, America. And the country kind of came together. You know, we had, uh, you know, America's mayor, Rudy Giuliani, like all of it. And he talked about this idea that, you know, these tragedies and these moments that have shaped his perspective, you didn't have that kind of consensus or sort of that coming together moment after them. You didn't, you don't have that after mass shootings. You know, after mass shootings, um, what happens time after time and again is sort of this conversation around gun control, which obviously naturally like devolves into what it continues to devolve into, um, despite, you know, the continued frequency and, and just the tragedies that we're seeing. And then, you know, Black Lives Matter and the George Floyd protests, there really was that divide, you know, between law and order and, and the protests and all of it. And so it is interesting to talk to him because all of these moments, he really has never had that like moment of resolution or consensus after as well, which I do also think sets him apart from other members of Congress who are shaped by other other events. It's fascinating. And and it's such a specific worldview that you just crystallized there. But this is still a moment for him. I, I can't get beyond the fact that even though this is what he's come to expect of the Republican Party, this was still 
probably one of the most, if not most memorable, memorable and important days that he will have in his life. Um, and to have it hijacked by a bunch of jackals, uh, for, at least for his family, must be meaningful. His family came, right, to watch the swearing-in or his loved ones? Yeah, so they came to watch the swearing-in, um, but everybody had to go back to work. Like, you know, his mom is a special ed teacher. His dad's a full-time musician. Um, they came for a swearing-in on Tuesday. He didn't get sworn in until, you know, early morning Saturday. Like, people had to go home, you know. Um, I do think that his grandmother was there and his girlfriend was there to watch it, um, to see it. But even talking to him, um, we had a phone call on Sunday just to kind of debrief and talk about that moment for him. And, you know, he even said, like, he was there with his other, with these other freshman members of Congress, and they sort of had to check themselves and be like, no, this is happening. Like, keep it in perspective because sort of the chaos and, you know, just the protracted battle over the speakership had really kind of taken away from the celebratory or even like fun, obviously, of the moment. Like it should be something that celebrate. And certainly it's still historic. It's still a historic moment. And he, you know, he told me he's looking forward to serving and honored to serve. But like that moment was definitely tarnished by what we saw happen on the Hill. You were in the hall for how many hours? So I was there, man, the votes like every day started at noon and I was there and then I would be there, you know, through the evening and you just sit there and, and the process is arduous, right? Like you go through the roll call, you know, reporters up in, in the gallery, we had these little sheets, um, sheets of paper that had everybody's everybody's names, right? And so you would go through and you would just wait for that handful, not handful, but, you know, that um, 19 or 20. So Republicans, by the end, you knew all of their names, but um, those 19 or 20 Republicans who were, you know, breaking with McCarthy and it'd be, you know, you'd get to those names, you'd get to Chip Roy, you'd get to Lauren Boebert, Matt Gates, and all of this. And then they would say, Byron Donalds or uh, Jim Jordan or even, you know, Gates for his for his little moment of theatrics, Donald Trump. But it was sort of like you knew every time that, you know, you would hit those four votes and you're like, McCarthy doesn't have it. But you would still go through all 434, 35, because I think mainly there were 434 members that were there due to the um Democratic lawmaker had passed um, at the end of last year. But so I, I think it was just this like exercise in futility, but it took so long. Like it was just time after time you're going through this and nothing changed. Like it really did not change until that final evening um, when you had these like negotiations kind of come to fruition and you saw the, you know, Boebert shift to present, Gates shift to present, you know, a couple folks like go over to McCarthy as he made these massive concessions. But just watching it was depressing. Like it was mm -hmm. really depressing because it also was sort of you know you don't have the votes right now. Like, why are we going through this? Or you think you have the votes and you definitely don't, which means you're doing a really bad job already at, like, <laughs> the role that you're trying to seek. So it was just kind of, you know, this ongoing process. And you would watch, like, 
it was interesting. Like the first day, a lot of members of Congress bring their kids. You know, they have little kids mm. with them. They have babies with them, um, members of family. And you would just watch throughout the day. They were just like all these kids were just snoozing. Like they were just completely passed out, like on the House floor. You know, there were a number of members with like babies strapped to them who were like completely completely uh, passed out. They're changing their diapers in the cloakroom, all of this. And it was just sort of this surreal image of like U.S. government. It felt like we were in like, I don't know, the British parliament or something. <laughs> yeah. Like watching paint dry. Mm-hmm. I, I, uh, I'm just so struck. This whole thing highlighted like an X-ray, a remarkable reversal of the political blueprints that we've all known for many years. We always thought of the Republicans as the lockstep disciplined party that, you know, got behind a leader and followed through. And that, and the Democrats were always the uh, unmanageable, herding the cats party. I mean, even just a year ago, Emily Jane Fox and I would be on this podcast talking about the kind of, you know, Democrats in disarray, right? Just to put it, a fun, you know, shorten it. And now it's been reversed. The Democrats were able to kind of manage their progressive wing and get through the midterms and win in remarkable ways. And the Republicans are now completely lost their way. I mean, they are now in disarray. They've got this rogue party, this rogue party within the party, who basically set these rules out, it seems to me, and this is what I want to talk to you about, so that they can just make noise, right? Mm -hmm. So that they have a lever to cause chaos and generate news, which is sort of seems to be people like Matt Gates's primary, you know, mission in life, right? Mm-hmm. What do you, I mean, is this, is this what we're going to see, do you think, uh, every time some new thing comes along uh, where or some budget or whatever it is they're going to be trying to pass, that we're just going to continually see this? Or do you are people talking about Kevin McCarthy able to somehow make his way through this narrow passage? Or what do you expect will be the new kind of calculus here? You know, this is going to be the norm. You know, it was interesting, kind of to your point, when Gates finally tur- like switched his vote from Byron Donalds or others to present, people asked him about his decision, and he said— you know, on the record to a reporter, you know, I ran out of things that I could even think of to ask for. Like, this was just a, like, this is holding, you know, McCarthy hostage and trying to do this. And like, they got everything they wanted, you know, and some of it, again, is it's not going to, like, I, I, I do understand the arguments behind some of these moves and some of these decisions, but it certainly is not going to make the House run more efficiently. That's for damn sure. And McCarthy is still going to be operating with a, um, you know, four-member majority. If you think about what Pelosi was dealing with this past in the 117th, like this past Congress, like she struggled with it. And let's be honest, I actually, you know, it, it's funny, a couple of weeks ago, I spoke with Ilhan Omar and she said that, you know, she sort of made the joke. She's like, we saw Pelosi struggle with this. And I don't think anyone on the other side of the aisle has the skill or the fortitude or the patience of Nancy Pelosi to be able to pull anything off. And already, 
you know, they're not going to pass anything substantive. You have the Senate and you have Joe Biden with the power of the pen. So they're really not going to be able to do much. What we are going to see is, you know, this deluge of investigations into, you know, Hunter Biden's laptop, what's going on at DOJ, the border, all of these things. That's really where they're going to be kind of flexing their powers now that they're in the majority. But they're really, aside from that, they're going to be relegated to passing messaging bills. And you're already seeing that. And it, it and it's sort of just remarkable. This week, they're voting on um, anti-abortion bills. They got the reason that they, like, yeah. didn't do better in the midterms. Really, it, like, abortion was on the ballot. And that's really what sort of, you know, stopped this expected red wave in the midterms. And, you know, their first week after this chaotic battle for speaker, the first bills that they introduce are anti-abortion and trying to limit abortion and, you know, cement the Hyde Amendment and do all these things. And it's just like, what did you learn? Nothing. Um, You know, and we're even at a point where Nancy Mace, who isn't, you know, the most moderate Republican comes out and she's like, what are we doing here? You know, this isn't this isn't worth our time. This isn't where the people are. Um, and it's just like no lessons learned clearly from the midterms. And then you couple that with a, you know, weak leadership in Kevin McCarthy. It's just going to be two years, I think, of further chaos. America has a problem, one that is uniquely ours. On the new season of Long Shadow, I delve into the complicated history of firearms from the Second Amendment to the AR-15. I try to make sense of how we got here and how we might find a path forward. From Longlead, PRX, and Campside Media, in collaboration with The Trace, I'm Garrett Graff, and this is Long Shadow in Guns We Trust. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. Well, I think what you have is this minority of representatives who are obviously not there to serve their constituents and definitely not there to serve their country, but are there to serve themselves. And so you can't make the argument that this is bad for Republicans because they don't give a shit about whether this what this means for Republicans or for democracy or for the country. They care about what kind of contract they can get out of this, what kind of book deal they can get out of this. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know how, and this goes back to like generationally talking about Gen Z, like I think that Gen Z gets a rep for like everything being an online stunt, right? That like it's the TikTokification of life. Everything's gamified. Um, But I think you see with with the, the people who were holding up the vote last week that they're in this very online hyperloop attention uh, seeking um, memification of their roles, right? And what can they get from this? So I don't know how you govern when there are other incentives beyond getting reelected. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And I think to put it into perspective, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene, which, you know, normally would kind of fall into that camp of, you know, 
building her celebrity, you know, with her comments, you know, kind of that shock value approach um, to being a member of Congress, she said, she's like, look, like she handed it to the Democrats and she was like, they've shown that they can work together. She's like, I hope we can do the same. And if you have Marjorie Taylor Greene kind of staking that position out after what we saw this last week, like, I don't think (laughs) that's not a positive sign that we aren't going to see more, you know, more of these antics and more of these kind of um, like this puffery and sort of this attention seeking behavior from some of these lawmakers. And it was actually interesting, you know, to kind of go back to the Gen Z um, and, you know, the social media of it all and the celebrity of it all. When I was speaking with Max Frost, he acknowledged that. He said, you know, there are a lot of people in his um, in his generation where it is, you know, that status on TikTok or that status on Instagram um, and kind of that, you know, the folks who have, you know, future president in their social media bios. And when he was deciding whether or not to run, He's, he kind of identified that and, you know, he did a gut check around, like, do I actually want the position or do I want the title? And, you know, he really determined that he wanted the position. He wanted the job. He didn't want to just be a congressman. He wanted to do the work of a congressman. Um, and so I do find it interesting that we are just kind of seeing this proliferation of folks that don't necessarily seem to be there, not even for the best interests of the country, but not even their constituents, um, but themselves. You know, as you said, Emily, it's like they're just looking for those fat checks from uh, Fox News or or whichever outlet down the line. But wasn't it interesting, though, Emily and Abby, that, uh, you know, you had Sean Hannity, who's typically the platform for launching these sort of attack style shock jock brands, right, kind of putting the brakes on a little bit. Uh, against uh, Lauren Boebert, for instance, and uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, suddenly, you know, she's a reptile. She's just going to go where the water flows, right, where the money flows and where the detention flows. But she's also realizing there's limits to this and that if they don't shift, they're they're not going to have actual power because they're Mm -hmm. being divided is going to diffuse their power. She's seen the limits of media power because that's only what she's done for the last few years. And it was interesting that she sided with Kevin McCarthy in all of this. Well, it's fascinating to me also, like, right now it's working for these people and they will get whatever they can get from this. But, like, we've seen the limits of that with the Trump who was in this for the same reason, right? And eventually what happens is their ambition and their greed and their shock value is not the thing that runs out. It's the people's patience with that, right? And Mm -hmm. uh, right now, they're getting a kick out of it, right? Right now, they're feeling like they're getting this this high and this attention. And who knows, are they going to get a radio contract? Are they going to get a (laughs) contributorship? Um, But at some point, people will get tired of that. And they won't get tired of the mentality in total, but someone else will come along who will seem like fresh blood, who will seem fresher. Even I don't know if you saw this, but Don Jr. was posting last week photos of Matt Gates saying, like, this isn't what people elected in the midterms. Like, as as much as we didn't want the Democrats, we didn't want what's happening, like this shit show that's happening now. And I thought, geez, if you lose Don Jr., right. you've, you've really lost the plot. Well, and the, like, 
Republicans have spent these last years as the opposition party. And like being in the opposition party is an easier place to be. Like you're not crafting policy. You're not the, you're not, you're not the proposition party, right? You're the opposition party. But what's really fascinating right now is like Democrats don't even really need to be the opposition party from what we're seeing at this moment. Like there's a party within the Republican party that is serving that purpose, serving that purpose as the opposition party. And so it's just, you know, it's kind of the Republican party eating itself. Uh, which is, you know, doesn't bode well for them come 2024 by any means. Well, because this is an inflection point for them. I mean, this last election cycle showed that there was a ceiling on Trumpism, and we've reached it. We may have reached it, you know, in the previous two election cycles, actually, but like the Trump paradigm is breaking down. And I, it was interesting listening to the McCarthy, pro-McCarthy people last week because they kept trying to say, no, this isn't about Trump. We still like Trump. But, you know, there was a lot of confusion about where Trump over overlaid with all of this, right? And this rogue group is obviously kind of represents what Trump created, what he sparked and invented, right? Uh, but now Trump was siding with McCarthy because he's McCarthy's, you know, I mean, he's Trump, McCarthy is Trump's, whatever you want to call it, Mike Heaven. Uh, so there <laughs> seems to be like some, yeah. there's a lot of like, um, it's it's breaking down. They're breaking down. And they're going to have to create new storylines that they can cohere around. Immigration obviously will be a strong one for them. But I think abortion is, is it's over. You know, I mean, that's it's not going anywhere. It's a losing issue. They it's lost on the issue. They lost on the yeah. issue. So. They, and they haven't shown they can win on immigration, and immigration is very – it's a tough one. You know, It can go either way in a lot of cases, but it's working against Democrats right now. But it had, didn't work against them in the midterms, but of course the Republicans didn't really strongly message on it enough to make it a, a – but they will in 2024, and we know that. In any event, uh, on the other flip side of this is the Senate and McConnell trying to kind of hold some kind of center, right? And it's not even clear now that the Democrats control the Senate, they will even pass anything that Congress, that the House tries to put through. So there's basically things are going to be, you know, nothing's going to get done is what it boils down to, except for noise making. Mm -hmm. You know, lawmaker, Democratic lawmakers who I've spoken with, they're kind of in this position where they're just like, they recognize that the purpose of the Senate and Joe Biden with the Republican-led House moving forward is just to serve as a bulwark against, you know, crazy legislation, these messaging bills and all that. I certainly don't think the next two years are going to be productive in Washington. Right. Although we will see uh, these messaging bills, I suppose they're just going to use them as media noise making in order to try to cohere in time for the 2024 election. Right. There's so much chaos that it's actually very interesting for us, <laughs> right, to watch what it is they do, right, mm -hmm. um, to watch whether they can cohere and whether somebody new emerges that will be a new messenger. Right. Mm -hmm. Don't you think that people are like tired of the chaos, though? I didn't yes. think that until the midterms, until I saw people, how people were talking about Trump since the midterms. But uh, I really thought that we were addicted to the drama of it and 
I, it's a relief. I truly did. But I now <laughs> feel like no one wants it. Like no. the cha- the chaos is met with the appropriate level of what the fuck are you doing? Exactly. And uh, I I just feel like no one wants to tune into this anymore. Everyone's yeah. like over it. It's enough already. Yeah. So let's talk about that for a minute in terms of what that could mean for Joe Biden. Because, you know, we can expect probably in the next couple of weeks to hear that he's going to run again in 2024, right? And uh, I happen to be uh, bullish on on Joe Biden, which is, I don't know if that makes me rare among Democrats because uh, I'm not a Democrat per se, but I, as an analyzer of the Democratic Party, I think that he's done an amazing job by doing the opposite of what of what we're talking about, Right of recognizing that people don't want the chaos, that they do want just a boring center to exist, right? And by himself not being in the news cycle, right? Mm -hmm. So will Republicans take that lesson or are they just going to keep going down this road that keeps failing? Um, But what do you think about Biden and his prospects right now? I mean, how do we analyze him? Well, I think like the first place to start, you know, obviously he's older, But, and that's, you know, something people bring up, he has been incredibly effective to date, especially when he had, um, you know, the Democratic majority in the House, they passed crazy amounts of legislation. But looking ahead and sort of what his prospects are for 2024, I think the real question to ask is, okay, if not Biden, then who? Who is the alternative to Biden? And nobody has an answer for that. There's no clear successor. There's no clear individual that would kind of step into that vacuum should he not run. And so I think at this point, it's almost by default that Joe Biden will be the nominee or people will kind of prop him up as the 2024 Democratic nominee. You know, if he weren't, I think we would have a, you know, kind of a carnival or a circus of a Democratic primary where you would have, you know, 15, 16 people trying to throw their hats in the ring and end up with a very kind of fractured, chaotic primary. I just think right now, that's the question to ask. If not Biden, then who? And I haven't seen a clear answer on, you know, who that could be. Yeah. Well, and uh, that's the last thing the Democrats would want right now is that chaos. Like, let Mm -hmm. the other side be chaotic, right? And, but I also think that people do not want a replay of 2020. You know, they don't necessarily want to see Biden v. Trump, uh, you know, on their screen. And I do wonder if that creates an opportunity or sows more chaos on the Republican side to come up with something that's fresh, mm-hmm. right? Because if they're going to have a, a critique of Biden, it's going to have to be a fresh one. And maybe that's DeSantis. I don't know. Yeah, I guess, Emily, I'm kind of curious, you know, you're, you have your ear to the ground in Trump world. Like, what is your sense on what people are thinking about him as a candidate? Or, you know, obviously his, his children have stepped back from, you know, even the prospect of it. But like, what is your kind of view on it? It just seems like he's like a dead fish. (laughs) It doesn't feel great for him right now. You don't have a ton of people running into the Trump fold. I don't even know what the Trump campaign is. Like it's the most ramshackle, like Z list of people. You have no infrastructure. You have no 
old, steady, experienced hands. Obviously, you didn't really have that, but like at least you had a crop of people who really believed in the fact that it could be a prospect and you don't have that anymore. You're like, you've lost your family, you've lost your close circle. It's really just like the dregs that are left. And I think that tells you everything. I also like, Joe, I hear you about not wanting to see the same thing on the screen and like Republicans being motivated to have a new fresh face out there. But I kind of like don't feel like there's this unified Republican hand anymore. Like there used to be, this is why Republicans are so good at winning uh, elections. There used to be this cohesive body that was sort of like controlling everything and like plucking the perfect candidate at the moment or knowing at least the perfect message for the issues that were really resonating and making them really simple and really digestible and really appealing to voters. And that's how they've managed to win and win and win and stay so disciplined on those messages. But I think that the Republican Party is so fractured and the prisoners are are running the prison. And I don't think that there's this apparatus to like pluck the perfect person for Joe Biden anymore because you have the Gateses of the world who hijacked this very simple process last week that was always going to end how it ended. And so I don't I don't think that there's like the same mechanism as there was to do that eight years ago. Well, so and, I don't know. And even when you look at sort of the the funding and like the donor apparatus on the Republican side, you know, Sheldon Adelson's gone and it, you you kind of have these um, these billionaires, these rich guys trying to step in and sort of fill those shoes. And it's it really is interesting because, you know, one of those is Ken Griffin and he is a DeSantis guy, you know? So it's like if these other people are, you know, still backing Trump, they're going up against the guy who I think was I think at the end of the day, he maybe was the second largest donor, but he's been repeatedly like top one, top two, like just funding the Republican Party over these last um, last couple of years and like pouring money in, you know, he bet early on Ron DeSantis. And it's just sort of even like not even just like are, are the members of the party and the elected seemingly fractured, but like the donor system is fractured. Nobody's like lining up behind behind one guy or one woman, it seems at this point. Well, I honestly like don't even think about Trump as like a real candidate. Maybe mm-hmm. I'm naive. Maybe maybe I'm being stupid about it, but I like literally never even think of him as an actual candidate. I don't even I don't visualize him on stage with Biden at a debate. I don't visualize him on stage at a primary. Maybe these things will happen, but I guess I'm I've so ruled that out as a real possibility, not out of wishful thinking or anything, but I just like I don't see it, not from anyone I'm talking to, not from any of the money that I see going places. Obviously, DeSantis has the money behind him. He has a lot of momentum behind him. He is a state that really, really, really loves him, and I think Florida is sort of a little bit of a bellwether of where that faction of the Republican Party is headed or what's resonating with them. But I think our colleague Gabe Sherman wrote about this and from everything I've heard, Sanders is not a perfect candidate. And no. uh, he is definitely not a perfect politician and uh, not exactly the kind of guy who's kissing babies and uh, making making people swoon with his charm. And so um, I don't know. I really, I feel like, 2024 is both like two seconds away and a lifetime and we have a long political way to go to figure out what's going to happen there. I think anyone who says they know what's going to happen in 24 is a fool. Yeah. Well, and I do wonder, and I don't know, I'm not 
you know, I have no window into Donald Trump's brain. I don't know if anybody does. Sure. Um, but like, you kind of wonder if he would be scared to run again. Like he lost like his pride. Like, I don't know sort of how that fits into his, you know, his decision making. And if it's if it's just more fun for him to just kind of keep putting himself out there without actually having to get any like real skin in the game or risk, you know, losing once again. But again, um, like, I, mean, I, honestly, I have no idea a, what he's thinking. It's a calculation, right? It's it's yeah. run or face charges, right? Mm-hmm. Potentially. Mm-hmm. So right. I would imagine that someone in his situation is not thinking about this of like, am I going to win? Am I going to risk losing again? Am I a big loser? I think the calculation is if I do not run what Am charges I could I face? <laughs> yeah. That's right. And will this get, is this my last ditch effort to get out of these investigations? So I, I don't even think that it's making a decision based on like odds of win or lose or will this, what will this do to my legacy? It's post that conversation. I think it's a lot more dire. Mm-hmm. Well, and kind of a funny, just sort of anecdote um, with what we're seeing right now in the in the House is Ron DeSantis was one of the nine, I think nine, founding members of the House Freedom Caucus. So it's just sort of this like very like full Circular. circle of chaos that is kind of coming coming together in this in this political moment, I think. Yeah. Well, I will say this. It's very um, it, it's amusing to watch and kind of a relief after all that we've uh, had to bear these last few years in the Trumpist madness. Um, you know, uh, Emily and Jane Fox and I have um, been through the Trump roller coaster on this podcast from episode to episode over the last couple of years. And, um, you know, if someone had shown us uh, this little chapter uh, on the horizon, we would have like sighed in relief, you know, to know that there was an end in sight. And it does appear that we're at a if not an end, an inflection point. And and I do think that Trump's public political narrative is going to fade with a whimper and not a bang. Um, And that seems to be what's happening. Of course, predictions are problematic, but I don't see um, any kind of dramatic, you know, he would like there to be a narrative in which people are counting him out and he makes a dramatic comeback. I don't see that. I don't see that. And uh, I, I do think Ron DeSantis must be rubbing his hands together uh, in private right now because of how weak he is. And that puts him in a pretty strong position. We'll have to see how he plays his cards. In the meantime, let me just say, Emily Jane Fox... You're in Los Angeles, California, uh, where you're experiencing uh, biblical flooding and all kinds of chaos on the West Coast. And uh, we are out on the East uh, wishing and hoping and praying for you right now and your, and, your, uh, and your people, your Californians. It's nuts here, guys. That's all I have to say. Uh, I mean, I obviously am new to California. I grew up in the East Coast where there's weather in California. There's like really not weather. Um, and so... I used to joke about how like Californians in rain were like such babies, like it rained and everyone stayed home. Uh, I don't think I remember a time on the East Coast, my whole first 31 years of life 
where there was prolonged heavy rain like this. Like I never experienced anything like that on the East Coast. This is like days and days and days of incredibly heavy rain. I live up a canyon. Uh, we were seeing footage last night from our local Facebook group of like <laughs> cars, like basically like trash cans floating down Laurel Canyon Boulevard. And people were saying that a street near us is basically a river and there are four houses that could potentially slide down a hillside. It's really crazy. Uh, last night, the rain was was so hard on our roof that I, I said to my husband as, as we were getting ready for bed, I was like, this feels like Noah's Arky to me. Like this is, I don't know how this, like this whole city just doesn't wash away. And obviously LA's infrastructure is not equipped for this kind of weather, uh, not only handling this kind of disaster relief, but also in capturing the water that we so desperately need at most of the time of the year. There's you know, drought conditions and not enough water. And we, uh, the state imports most of its water. So it's really just a true disaster. I'm a little scared up here. I know we're fine, and I'm, but I'm like a little bit of a baby about it. It looks a little dark. Like well, it is your, dark in your video Zoom. Like I can, it feels like I can see it. <laughs> it's it's um, you know, in the East Coast, you hunker down, and it's like you can be cozy in weather. This doesn't feel like cozy weather. This feels like a little doomsday. So um, it's supposed to stop hopefully tonight, and. You know, just say a prayer for all the people in Los Angeles. I know places are being evacuated. Montecito was evacuated yesterday. Um, thinking about Prince Harry and Meghan and if they got out in time and uh, <laughs> all, all the people up there. So, um, yeah, just stay cozy, stay safe, people. And most importantly, to us here listening to this podcast, we are just so grateful to have our dear friend and colleague Abby back Abby we know we will have you back again because we always ask you to come back but I'm going to ask you again please as as this unfolds come share your wisdom with us yeah absolutely I'm always happy to join and it's always so good to talk to you guys and you know in a non-meeting format so I appreciate it Three, two, one. Political Breakdown is a daily politics podcast from KQED in San Francisco that goes deep into the issues you care about. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. Look, 2024 is going to get weird. Who decides when there's been an insurrection or not? We're still in the innovation phase of AI. And that is where you see that they're not actually being equitable and trying to build a utopia where we can all use drugs happily together. (laughs) But whatever happens this election year, the KQED politics team is in this with you. Political Breakdown. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts.